The following episode of TOEFOP is rated M.A. It may contain Batman references, time travel references, sexual references, lost trains of thought, and mild course language. TOEFOP advises that the program is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who enjoys succinct, coherent conversation that might actually have a point. Minors must be accompanied by a parent, guardian, or priest. This is John Deke speaking. This is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson, and I'm excited, Charlie, because it feels like we're returning to a golden era of Tofop. Because we've just decided to spend some of our limited and hard-earned money on something stupid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really feels like we're in that sweet spot of just wasting money for ideas that amuse us and no one else. So, uh, do you want to run people at home through the conversation we've just had with Mike Hal, our producer? Yeah, this is literally hot off the press. So just um, before we record the show, uh, we normally have a bit of a chat with Mike Howell, just catch up on things and make sure our levels are right and everything. And uh, he just informed us that he's brought a brand new Turbo Mini Cooper uh, in the colours of Tofop. So red, black, chrome and white, sort of that St Kilda-esque sort of colour, which is also uh, the colours of his favourite team, the Cleveland Trailblazers. Cleveland the Trailblazers? Portland Trailblazers. Right? No. Portland Trailblazers. Sorry, fuck, I should know that. It's in Portland, Well, Oregon. the, the, the uh, Cleveland Trailblazers, but, they actually trailed an earlier blaze, but unfortunately it was a terrible trail and they all died. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up having to move to Portland. Uh, but he said that um, uh, he's looked into the idea of getting personalised number plates because there is exactly five characters you can put on the number plate in that state. So uh, we did the math, we crunched the numbers, and we said, yeah, why don't we get some TOEFOP number plates so you can get a TOEFOP vehicle? The TOEFOP mobile. There's literally going to be a colours of our... The TOEFOP mobile. Like, like the Batmobile, we will have our own TOEFOP mobile that is driven by our producer. I mean, just the fact that we're going to confuse so many people in Oregon, to me, is one of those things that it's worth it. It's worth it for any amount of money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael, I don't think you understand. I have to explain to people constantly what the fuck TOEFOP means to people in Australia where the reference has at least some kind of validity. But you're going to be explaining that shit all the time. You're going to have to get really up to date on Russell Crowe's band so you can really walk people through it. I mean, the amount of feedback I get from listeners to this show who listen from overseas, who say when they meet an Australian, they're like, oh my God, you're Australian. Do you listen to TOEFOP? And then have to explain to the Australian what TOEFOP is. Uh, (laughs) I, I think it's going to confuse a lot of people. When people ask you, what's your show about? What is your standard go-to answer? Uh, about 70 minutes, give or take. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There is that pause, isn't there? I mean, I often, like, I, I end up, I find myself dissuading people from listening more often than encouraging them to listen. I'm always like, well, it's, uh, it's me and my mate, and we sort of catch up uh, and we talk about stuff. There's no real kind of format um, it's about... Oh, hang on. Mike Hal's given us a, a bio. It's a comedy conversation between two old mates. That sounds terrible. So I wouldn't listen <laughs> that to that. sounds terrible. Sorry, no way. Is that going to be our no tagline? <laughs> I'm happy for nothing for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Mike Hal, if you get the decal of our heads on the side of your uh, Mini Cooper so you can get a tax write-off and you can get... Can you also get the tagline written underneath? It's a comedy conversation between two <laughs> old mates. <laughs> Just in calligraphy, under our faces, on the side of your car. And like, it's a comedy conversation between two yeah, old put mates. put a little asterisk next to it and then underneath have the explanation yeah. of what it actually is. That'd be really brilliant. Um, it, I, it's, I think it's sometimes interesting when somebody else explains what the show is about to you. And so yesterday, um, I got together with um, some guys uh, to record a faux fop that'll come out in the future uh, with two really cool guys who have a hugely successful international podcast, but they're based in Australia. It's called The Weekly Planet. And you got me onto this podcast. Like you, you were the first person who said to me, you got to listen to this. This is really great. 
And so I'm doing a, an interview with those guys for their podcast and they start trying to explain what TOEFOP is. And you can even see in their eyes, they were like, well, sometimes you talk, they talk about stuff that's like the stuff we talk about on our show, comic books and movies and stuff. And sometimes they talk about nothing. And like the last one was about a dream Charlie had. <laughs> <laughs> so generally, it's a podcast equivalent of sitting next to that crazy guy on public transport. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's a random journey of you'll never know what will happen next. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I've, uh, I can actually uh, finally uh, announce the, uh, the, the reason I'm in Adelaide because the, they've done a press release. I'm uh, working on Wolf Creek right now. And so I'm um, uh, meeting a lot of new people that I'm working with, a lot of cast members, a lot of crew and stuff who are sort of slowly kind of cottoning onto the fact that maybe I have this other life, this podcast. And so I've been doing repeated explanations of TOEFOP over the last two weeks, which has been... Like, I think I'm getting more apologetic <laughs> as the time goes on. Um, one of the girls came up to me yesterday, one of the cast members, and said, oh, a friend of mine um, uh, lives in New York, and she, she's been listening to you, and she's been hearing you say you're working on a show in Adelaide, and she put two and two together, we must be working together. What's your show about? And I was like, oh, look, just ask your friend. Like, I mean, she's your friend. Like, she might be able to explain it to you better than, than I could because I don't want to start off. I don't want to – I mean, I also get embarrassed saying, oh, you know, we talk about time travel and Batman and stuff because I don't want to, like, paint us with that brush. And I don't want to say we get into, like, serious topics because we don't really, you know, delve into it that often. I mean, I don't really know, Will. I don't, it's seven years and I still don't know what this show is. <laughs> um, you know how there's a lot of product placement in these, um, you know, TV shows these days. It's obviously uh, harder – increasingly for people mm -hmm. to get budgets to make, you know, impressive works of, you know, television and film and stuff like that. And I imagine working on Wolf Creek, which was such a hugely successful Australian movie and then became a really, really successful, like, international TV show. Um, I imagine they want it to look really good and they probably have to raise money to make it look really good, right? Is there any chance yeah. that as, as well as Mike Hell's uh, personalised number play that we could put a little bit of the TOEFOP Patreon budget <laughs> aside and just get a scene in the film where, like, Mick Taylor, the murderer, is just, like, in his, like, you know, kind of, like, murdering place, doing some murdering, like, getting his torture on, and he's listening to TOEFOP in the background. <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe that's the thing that sends him into his murderous rage. He's like, Annie Lennox? Annie Lennox? Andrew Dice Clay, it makes no sense. Oh, I've got to kill someone. No, I was actually thinking it was part of his torture regime. Like in the same way as he likes to like torture all his victims, he's playing TOEFOP to them as they die as an added level of torture. <laughs> yeah. It could be like that scene in um, uh, Science of the Lambs, you know, where Buffalo Bill is, uh, does the little tuck where he dances in the mirror and does a little tuck and, you, and there's that classic goodbye horses playing in the background, but it's just us rabbiting on about some bullshit in the background. Oh, I just like the idea that Mick grabs a weapon, you know, so the, like the poor person he's about to like, you know, hurt is in the other room, like tied up or, you know, bound or whatever. And you see yeah. this scene of him like mm. grab, like he goes into this room where he has all these weapons, all the things he uses to torture people. And he's lingering on that moment of collecting, you know, the torture of devices that he will use for his evenings torturing and he's picking up little things and big things and kind of you know putting them together in his torture kit and then at last moment he turn he, he like you know leans over he's got all his stuff and you just see him push play on an ipod and as he walks into the room you not knowing what's going to happen next you just hear your voice going everyone relax this is tofu <laughs> chilling <laughs> absolutely chilling now, I'm, so, I'm not saying that that couldn't be. Uh, or what about you? Like, you probably can't reveal what sort of character you are yet, right? They've said you're in it, but you probably still can't no. tell people. Is yes. there any? All I can say is I'm in it. Well, all I'm going to say is, is there any chance that in your character's description, yeah, it's without revealing anything about, mm. you know, who you are or what you're playing, is there any chance that your character could, is there a scene or something where they could be listening to Tofu? Um... Uh, Unlikely. There are characters who I think could be definitely be in the TOEFOP demographic, definitely, but not much. Okay, well, what? Although, 
wouldn't it be great? How about this? How about this? Because all the Wolf Creek movies and TV series are, are about people like, you know, traveling through Outback Australia and stuff. So when you go to a, like a, um, a small town, generally there's like a St. Vinny's. How about one of the characters is going through a St. Vinny's through a t-shirt rack and there for like two bucks is one of our Tofop t-shirts, one of James Fosdyke's awesome design Tofop t-shirts. And they just pluck it and they put it on. They wear it for a couple of scenes. How's okay, that I'd be happy branding? with someone getting murdered in a Tofop t-shirt. Like, yeah, one of them's wearing, like, you know, they're backpackers a lot of the time in Wolf Creek. So let's just speculate more like on previous ones. So rather than getting you in trouble for storylines yeah. for this, like we go back to say the original Wolf Creek movie, right? Just look at places in yeah. that movie where they could have like got us into it. Firstly, they're on a massive road trip, right? People listen to podcasts yeah. on road trips. So listening in the, listening in the car. Right. To perfect lab. Lots so that's yeah. a pretty obvious place. You could definitely do that. But like you said, that idea, now I'm warming to the idea of someone getting murdered in one of our T-shirts. Like, they're kind of young kids, right? A couple of backpackers and like an Australian in the original, right? So it's like, he could definitely yeah. be wearing a Topop T-shirt. Some young guy, like, you know, kind of going across Australia with strangers. That's your podcast demographic, I would have thought. Would you have the characters enjoying Topop? Like how heavily do we lean like all right i guess if we were like sony or uh you know starbucks or gm like a big company wanting some real push in our product placement let's say tofop has that kind of money our patreon's gone through the roof so we've gone to the producers and we're like we don't just want placement we want the characters referring positively to the show <laughs> like would it be something like you know that scene in irobot where uh, Will Smith takes out a pair of Converse, like brand new Converse from a box, and opens the logo directly to the camera. It's like, ah, oh, thing of beauty. Like, do you think in the first film, Nathan Phillips like, just takes out his earbuds and it's like, <laughs> Charlie Clawson and Will Anderson uh, certainly are a comedy conversation between two old mates. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to see that you come back from a scene, you know, because it's kind of montages cutting from Mick to them in the car having their sort of thing, right, or whatever. So, like, you come back and yeah. they're all laughing at once, like laughing uproariously at once. And then he turns the camera and just goes, oh, Will and Charlie, you've done it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's just when the producers just kick us out of the office? No. no well, my that's argument not would be, if you're doing it thematically, if you wanted to actually justify it, right, the slogan of this podcast yeah. is everyone relax, right? So the irony of having mm -hmm. them listen to a podcast, which was about everyone relax, going into a situation where everyone would not be relaxed, you could like sell that as being thematic to the entire project, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's ironic. It's kind of like when you have a film called romance and it's actually all about like broken-hearted people you can in fact let's retitle the franchise to everyone relax oh and also charlie to be honest with you like there could be those pivotal scenes like there always is where they can't get phone reception or their phone runs out of power right maybe the reason the phone runs out yeah. of power and these people get in trouble is because they listen to too many podcasts of us being hilarious on their long drive yeah and so, you know, you'd inevitably have that scene where someone has escaped, you know, mixed lair or whatever, and they're running to the highway with their phone. And you think they're running to the highway to get bars so they can call for help, but they're literally running to get 4G so they can download the latest episode. <laughs> Are you a horror aficionado, Will? I mean, I know uh, Amy is big into horror. Did you grow up liking horror I films? I like horror films, and I've seen heaps, because obviously Amy's a huge horror fan, but I would not uh, consider myself an aficionado, no. Well, in, in the 80s, which, you know, was kind of our golden era of horror icons, did you have a particular favourite? Was there a Freddy or a Jason or a Mike Myers, any of those icons? Tickle your fancy? Yeah, I, I mean, I was always pretty terrified of Mike Myers, mostly the love guru, but... Um, little, little joke <laughs> people out there. There you go, guys. <laughs> Love Guru was no yeah, good, that guys. that certainly is a comedy conversation between two old mates. Uh, Freddy Krueger. Living up, living up to our, living up to our subtitle. Yeah, no, Freddy Krueger. I mean, I think 
like when I was younger, the idea that he was both sort of like horrific but comedic for someone who enjoyed comedic things. I mm. like the idea that, you know, he was, you know, he had witty lines and kind of inventive ways to kill people. I always enjoyed that. I always thought it was weird. Like if you look at that first one, he was a child molester yep. and murderer. That's a very hard place to come back from to become a beloved Looney Tunes type character in the subsequent sequels. Like, I mean, that's some real good revisionist history. Like, has anyone ever come from that far back? Like, you, you raped and murdered children and now we're going to have you on T-shirts and show bags and we're going to create, like, Halloween masks out of you. Uh, here's what we should add to uh, a comedy conversation between old, two old mates. That also we might, three weeks later, just talk about something we didn't talk about that long ago. <laughs> I am sure we've had this exact same conversation on this podcast before. About Freddy yeah, Krueger? Yeah, about Freddy Krueger and how hard it is to come back from being a child molester to be a beloved <laughs> pop culture figure. Oh, really? God. I didn't know that. I apologize out there. Well, look, for anyone who's tuned in the last three weeks, anyone that I've uh, like sold this podcast to terribly over the last three weeks, it's going to be fresh content. It's like, do they, they're like, hang on, do they just talk about Freddy Krueger being a child molester every week? <laughs> well, I had this uh, discussion with someone the other day about reboots and, you know, uh, the, 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 the sort of reboots and the, and the reimaginings, the, the phase we're in now with movies where it's just like, there's a new Spider-Man every five years. And I think one of... I was saying, I'm bored of them. I don't, like, I don't think any of them work. Mad Max Fury Road, for me, is probably one of the only ones that's really worked because George Miller actually did something different with the character and the look of the film and all that kind of stuff. Or still keep the same universe. But I think there's an underrated one that happened years ago, which is when Wes Craven came back and did Freddy's New Nightmare. Have you ever seen yeah. that? It's very... It, it's a meta version where it's literally... The actors from the film, 20 years later, can't get past the fact that they were in Nightmare on Elm Street. And then Heather Langenkamp, who was the original girl from the first one, goes to see Wes Craven, who tells her that, oh, actually, when we made that first film, we actually created Freddy Krueger for real, and now he's coming back for us. That was a very cool twist. I like that. And they managed to go from the take the cartoonish Freddy and make him scary again. I agree. No, I mean that for me, like that's what you got to do. You got to creed it. You got to, you know, kind of reboot it. You got to have like a meta take on it to to go into this next thing. But speaking of reboots, Charlie, uh, it actually brings me to something I wanted yes. to talk to you about this week on the podcast because uh, I've seen seen this headline yeah. and I was wondering if you could uh, shed any light on this uh, bit of gossip, this rumor <laughs> that is sweeping through show business. Ah, I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Brody Carmody in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald I'm reading from here, or The Age. Uh, headline, McLeod's Daughter's Reboot on the Cards. It has been off air for nearly yeah. a decade, but McLeod's Daughters could be given a new life by Channel 9. Actress uh, Michaela Barnas, Banas, Barnas, Banas. I think it's Banis. Banis? You say Banis, I say Banis. This shit is Banis. Uh, famous for her role as Kate Manfredi <laughs> in the popular Aussie drama, teased fans on Thursday morning by sharing a... I love it. She just mm. teased fans on Thursday morning. That's what she just likes to do. She just likes to get online, tease some McLeod's Daughters fans uh, by sharing a collage on Twitter with the words, watch this space. Uh, for... Oh my God, it's McLeod's Daughters in Space. <laughs> that's brilliant. See, that's what I'm talking about, Will. You take the original characters, but you do something different with them. I don't want to see them on farms and drovers run again, chasing bloody cattle around. I want to see the McLeod's Daughters colonizing new planets. You want to see that? I would watch. You want to see them exploring the, the drovers Andromeda. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's not a bad idea. So talk me through, because you were, how long were you on McLeod's Daughters for? Yeah. Uh, I think just over a year. I, I sort of crossed over seasons. I came in at the end of season two and then sort of went to the end of season three. And run us through again. I don't know. Look, I, 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 I'm, no, I'm no expert. Like, I really am not. But all right, run, go on. No, Let, well, let's see what I can I, recall. All I need to know, I, I don't need the whole, like, history of McLeod's daughters. <laughs> but what was your character yeah. again? Um. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, his name was Jake. Yeah. I think his name. All right. Here's what I do remember. 
he <coughs> his story was that he was a jackaroo who came to work or, on or was you know, he a jackaroo? It was a jackaroo. It was jackaroo who came to work. And uh, his surname he had like a he had a name that was like Ryan Smith Jones, whatever, just Ryan, whatever. Um, but then what it turns out, his big reveal was that he wasn't just some run-of-the-mill jackaroo. He was actually the son of one of the wealthiest men in Australia. He was like the Lachlan Murdoch. Right. And he had come to the country undercover to see if, you know, he could just be, uh, if people would take him on face value, not just like him for being a wealthy prince. He was, his real name was Jacob Koshak, I think. That was, I do remember that. That was the big reveal is that he was the, the son of a very wealthy man. And so his father came to visit him on Drover's Run and was like, listen, son, like, I understand what you're doing. You're trying to sort of prove your worth, but you have to inherit my empire. You need to run, you know, whatever. My, I can't remember what his empire was. And he tried to buy off my girlfriend at the time. He's like, listen, my son has bigger things to do. You're holding him back in this little shithouse town. So here's some money to fuck off. <laughs> and, uh, and she didn't take it, which is her loss, really. Because <laughs> we ended up breaking was up. Was she one of the daughters? <laughs> was she one of the McLeod daughters? No, no. She, her name, her character's name was Becky, played by the lovely Jess Napier. Um, okay, so uh, here's a question. It was kind of like a yeah. your entire storyline was essentially an episode of Undercover Boss, right? Yeah, yeah. My storyline. That that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Somebody yeah. in the McLeod's daughter's writing room saw an episode of Undercover Boss and went, "We can make this a year." <laughs> I think it, it might have been preceded Undercover Boss, two thousand and. Two, two thousand and three, I think that maybe was. the creators of Undercover Boss watched McLeod's daughters and thought, I can condense this to an episode. <laughs> I actually remember the storyline that that particular storyline, um my we had to do this scene where well the scene was that my father took me out to dinner, me and my girlfriend out to dinner, and she was so like appalled by um you know, he, the fact that he, he thought she was just white trash, that she played it up even more. Like she turned up to this fancy restaurant, like, you know, in a denim mini skirt and studded, you know, studded singlet and stuff and was burping and drinking beer and stuff. But no matter how hard she tried, Will, I loved her. And I didn't care. She could be as rough as she wanted. She was the girl that I loved. i got to be honest with you. I get that because Jess Napier, um, I don't know her at hot. all. But she has that quality of like she's hard she'd be hard to dislike i reckon like she as an actress she was always like one of those characters where you're just like yeah it would not matter i i you know i like you yeah i'll stick by you i'll stick yeah. by you yeah it's, it was weird i i posted a photo on my instagram recently an old photo of my mcleod's days and i'd forgotten what my hair was like back then but as i wrote in my post it was like i would go into the hairdresser and say give me the ray martin because <laughs> it was a nice sweeping bowl across my head. I even think I had a bit of sideburn action going at the time. There was some other uh, tidbits I can give you, Will, is that um, production decided I looked no good in an Akubra. <laughs> they let me wear an Akubra for, I think, two or three episodes, and they decided I did not have a good head for an Akubra, so they switched me to a baseball <laughs> cap. Um, they gave me riding lessons for a couple of weeks and then decided they didn't want to let me near a horse, <laughs> so they gave me a motorbike instead. Um, I, mean, I was once banned from you getting need to be cast on McLeod's daughters is like wearing a Cobra and ride a horse and you couldn't fucking wear either. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I was banned from um, having given, get, getting given cab charges after one night. Um, I'd, one of the guys from the show had stuck at his, cause we'd shoot like an hour at Adelaide and Gawler in the country. And I decided after uh, shooting one day to go to a mate's place and have a few beers. And then it was like, Oh shit. I've missed my ride back into town, so I used one of my cab charges, which is about 240 bucks to get back to my hotel. So I was then banned from using cab charges from then on. Well, you're like, I would have... Um, I would have to pay like, my... I would have ridden a horse, but you won't let me near the horses. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you got banned we did an inf- from using the cab charges because everybody else was riding horses and you were just following them in a cab. <laughs> the thing about these horses, too, is they were like... They were veterans of the industry. Right. Like these were the kind of horses that have been used in every Australian production. Like you know the, the Snowy River Show, you know the Light Horseman, whatever. These horses could hit a mark 
better than most actors and they were totally placid. Like you had to be pretty shit on horseback not to be able to ride one of these horses into a scene. Literally, you just shit on it. The horse walks to where you got to go. You get off the horse. Right. <laughs> That's what you had to do. And they're like, nah, we don't trust this dude. Let's get him a motorbike. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? The guy we didn't trust on a horse, let's give him a high-powered work vehicle that can reach speeds over 120 kilometers an hour. That makes sense. I did stack one of those as well. <laughs> I guess they were like looking at it like, he'll probably stack either the horse or the motorbike, and it's easier to repair the motorbike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was probably an RSPCA yeah. issue. Uh, to be honest, it's not our decision. It's Peter. Peter have heard about it. They've got involved. The horses have contacted Peter. Well, there was one episode I remember we had to film where they actually had... The storyline at the time was that uh, there's, a, well, there's a breeding program. We're, we're getting the stallion to mate with the mare, you know, to, to breed these horses. And so they had... A, a stallion, like a genuine actual stallion um, and two mares on heat in the same pen. And I'm not sure, I mean, you grew up on a farm, so maybe you're a bit more experienced than me with this stuff. But when animals are on heat, particularly large animals, they're fucking crazy. Right. <laughs> like they will do anything to have intercourse. Well, at least the males. I don't know if the mare was that into it, I'll be honest with you. But in this scene, I had to go into this pen with this stallion, untether his rope, walk him out into like the paddock and then the stallion was meant to break free and run off and they were going to call cut. Now, they had stuntmen and doubles and stuff, but for some reason the director really wanted to see my face <laughs> walking into that pen and untying this horse. And this thing, man, like I walked in there and it was revved up. Like this fucking horse was there to do one thing and it wasn't a fuck around with some little two-legged human. Like he, he wanted to get down to business. He could see the mares on the other side of the paddock and he was getting ready. And so when I walk in there, this thing fucking starts rearing, like up on its hind legs and hoofs going and stuff. Give me the crazy eye, you know, Bruce, the Bruce Willis eye where you just do that big fucking horse eye thing. So I go up, I untether this horse, I open the gate. And as soon as we fucking step out into the paddock, this thing starts fucking rearing. And I'm hanging on to the rope, getting flung around like you would believe. Then the stuntman is screaming like, let go, let go of the rope, let go of the rope. So I let go of the rope. And this thing goes fucking berserk. Like it runs over the mares. It can't get to the mares. So then it starts like sprinting around. The entire crew, like a scene from Gladiator, has to run into the center of the paddock, like holding cameras and makeup bags and all this kind of shit and let this fucking thing circle us like a demon until the horse wranglers could come out like fucking rodeo clowns, distract the horse enough and get it back into the pen. And then they go, okay, reset, we'll go ah! again. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? reset will go again here's here's what i think happened charlie i think uh one of the yeah. directors made a bet that he could get some video footage of the horse having sex with you <laughs> that's, that's what it feels like to me it feels like it, he's got the horse all riled up got him in on heat put a couple of ladies around, got it all rolled up, and then sent in little pony boy claws. <laughs> Guys, you rolling? Are you rolling? Like We've got to get this when it happens. <laughs> it's just like the Flintstones. As the horse is mounted me, I'm just like, yeah, it's a living. I guess like maybe one of the guys had just started his own YouTube channel and he'd seen what sort of videos were getting yeah. high hits and he's gone, I've got an idea here to get my hits up. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was it was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. It was we'd also you're shooting on a working farm as well, which is highly unusual. So you've got it's the closest I ever came to your lifestyle world, your your childhood. I imagine like flies. That's the other thing. I mean, I imagine when you were growing up in Hayfield, um, the flies would have bothered you, but you didn't have to deliver like dialogue, uh, you know, in a specific point on a specific mark when you've got. Hundreds of blowflies trying to crawl into your mouth. No, no, no. We was, had to actually be farmers and actually not pretend to do something, <laughs> actually work for a living in those conditions. So, no, you're right. I'm sure it was much harder to be an actor in those conditions than it would be to be somebody actually trying to survive and make a living and a life in those exact same conditions. You're right, Charlie. My heart bleeds for you. And I'm sure on behalf of my family, we'd like to apologise to all actors for the conditions they've had to go through.
Thank you. Apology accepted. <laughs> you get very good at uh, acting uh, with your hand doing this in front of your face. You keep swatting the flies. In fact, I think that's where a lot of Australian, like you look at a lot of Australian male actors, you know, that masculine kind of Sam Worthington, Russell Crowe kind of quality where they're always like squinting and turning their heads and all that kind of stuff. I think it's mainly to do with flies. Right. Because when you're shooting outdoors, <laughs> you've got to get the flies out of your mouth. So your head's always down, you're always swatting in front of your face, you don't open your mouth too much. Yeah, I like I like that look that all Australian actors who act outside have of their mouth being closed and at least one of their eyes being closed at all times. Why can't they replicate it in America? Mate, release the fucking flies. <laughs> I imagine that Russell Crowe, this is the sort of thing, if I heard this about Russell Crowe, this would not surprise me because you know there's always a story mm. about in America, he has like, you know, special channels so he can watch the rugby league and he gets like VB, like imported in so he can drink VB. And like, you know, it would not surprise me if a rumor came out that they stopped, like they found like eight jars of flies that Russell Crowe had just like ordered so he could feel like it was more like Australia. And he just releases flies so he can watch the footy and eat some pies. <laughs> um, I know you have to go soon, right, mate? How long have you got left? Uh, we, we got, no, we got another... No, we're good. We're good. Good another okay, half hour. Okay, brilliant. Um, I just didn't want to, you know, uh, you to miss your your work commitments. <laughs> Lose my yeah, job. Yeah, I like the fact that you're Thank employed. You. And from that. what you've just told us about your time on McLeod's Daughters, you're not going back for the reboot of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> I doubt. No, I don't think. Uh, I don't think I was a, a beloved character by any stretch. I think if anything, I was on the periphery. I mean, my. My time on that show was purely dictated by Jess Napier's contract. I think if she had decided she wanted to stay on the show, maybe I would have stuck around. Even then, I was just a love interest. Like, that was primarily my function was to uh, give her something to do. Could you not? <laughs> give her something to worry about. Could you not about. come back, though? Like, if the storyline was true that you were the son of this, like, you know, like, guy who had this empire, like, couldn't it progress to the point where mm. that guy is now, you know, kind of his dad? You know, as in, like, he's become the one who's had to be in charge of it all and it's changed him as a personality. So you could almost come back, you know, more like a, you know, a, you know, a villainous character or like a, you know, different place in your okay. life. Okay. I, I think you'd have to do it in a way. Like, you were talking last week about Joss Whedon and the way he plants minor characters early on and then has them play a larger part later. I think it would you could do something like that. But Jacob Koshak is not coming back to McLeod's Daughters with any... Like, that's not the... You're not hinging a major plot point on, oh, my God, it's Jacob Koshak, or it was Jacob Koshak all along. I think I'd come back into town and people would be like, oh, yeah, I, remember, I think I remember you. <laughs> you're that guy who uh, wore the baseball cap on the motorbike that you stacked occasionally. Uh, so what are you doing here? And then you could work in something about, oh, Jacob's bought in... You know, he's bought all the runs. Not just Drover's run, but... Whatever the other oh, runs Okay, well, how about this then? Remember. Just like if his character's not big enough for th that reboot, how about like Cheers to Frazier style? Because Frazier wasn't the biggest character yeah. on Cheers or the most beloved or anything, but they took that character and knew there was more stories to tell and went away and made this show that was you know, great in its own right. Could you not have Koshak? Mm. And it's like a spin-off and it's all about you know, Jacob's life. Do you think he'd be back in the city then? Like, would you would you remove it? It's like Jacob running the head office of this kind of like you know cattle farm or whatever. He yeah, does. I reckon it's a sideshow. So occasionally you could still make an appearance in, the, or like one of the McLeod's daughters' cast could like make an appearance in your world. Yeah, but like in a general sense, you're two separate yeah. shows. Yeah, so it's like I mean, because Cheese is all set in a Boston right. bar, but Frasier. Was Frazier still set in Boston or was he in another city? I never really watched so no, it. I can't remember which city he was in. But it was all like, it was a complete opposite feel. It was more like highbrow comedy set in his radio show right. and his like, you know, loft apartment, right? So you could definitely do that. Koshak. Koshak's son? <laughs> Why don't we go even further? It's not even just, it's not even just Jacob Koshak. It's my sons now. And my, ironically, my sons are encountering the same problems as the McLeod's daughters. Or... My son, I have become my father. I've got my son into the business. And my son, who's a teenager, is turning his back on me because he wants to go to Drover's Run to find true love. How about that? I like that. It's sold. <laughs> <laughs>
Greg called, get Channel 9 on the phone. Does Eddie Maguire still run that joint? you got connections to Eddie. <laughs> Koshak's sons. We've got a great idea. It's a McLeod's daughters. I guess like, a, you know, it goes with it. It's in the same universe. We're, we're, you know what we're doing? We're working on the McLeod's daughters extended universe. So this is the, yeah, the MDU. This is yeah. just a spin-off in the MDU. The MDU. <laughs> Uh, Mike House just confirmed that Frazier actually was in Seattle. So that, that makes sense. So you could have Koshak, Koshak Industries in yep. Sydney. Makes sense. Wouldn't you? Not in Adelaide, not big enough, right? You need to have an extreme. It's got to be Australia's biggest city. So Jacob Koshak runs some property uh, or agricultural business in Sydney. Uh, he's got two sons. Um, twins. Let's make them twins. Or at least close yeah. in age. Cain and Abel kind of thing, yeah, right? Them. And their names will be... The names will Cain be... Cain and Abel. Koshak. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all right. Let's not overcomplicate it. Cain and Abel Koshak. And one of them is like the company man. Yeah. And one of them is... And one of them and one of them wants to... to he wants to turn his back on uh, the, the corporate life and, and just go uh, work on a run. And so he goes to Drover's Run, which I, I assume... I never really checked this. I assume it like it's all meant to be set in South Australia. It's not... You know, even though it was shot in South Australia, it was actually set in South Australia. There's never any local cultural references to places anywhere specifically in South Australia. But there was never any scenes where Jacob yes, Koshak right? walked onto Drover's Run and went, "How about those crows on the weekend?" Yeah. <laughs> well, ah, did you see there was a footbridge at Adelaide Oval? Now it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, that'd be great though if uh, Koshak Industries were responsible for building the footbridge to the Adelaide Oval. Ah, uh, yes. Well, that's okay. Brilliant. That's, how, that's the pilot episode, is that the Koshaks are in town to open the footbridge at Adelaide Oval. Does that make sense? So you've got Dad and his two sons there. And they call and the sons the Koshakians. They're having like, yes, yes. And there's like, because it's a big event, it's like a carnival, like a fate is going on, and there's like pony rides or a petting zoo or something. And that's when my son, Cain or Abel, which one was the, which one was the good well, son? I don't know. Let's say Abel. Yeah, okay. So Abel... Abel sees Abel. like so a girl. I'm yes, that's I'm going to say that. Yeah, Abel sees like a cute chick, you know, running the petting zoo, and goes over and talks to her, and you know, you know what happens? Like he goes over to the petting zoo, or there's like pony rides, and a kid falls off this pony, and this pony runs away, and he chases after it, and because he's grown up with horses, like you know, he's able to get the pony and bring it back, and the girl's like, hey, that's some pretty good moves, uh, you know, you uh, you're a horseman, and he's like. Yeah, I grew up on farms. And she goes, wait a minute, aren't you uh, Abel Koshak or Koshakian? And he's like, yeah, that's my father's name. <laughs> you can just call me, you can just call me Abel. And so from that meeting, he decides he wants to take his tie off and he wants to go with this girl back to her father's farm, Drover's Run, and work on the farm. There you go. That's how, that's the pilot oh, episode. I love it, Charlie. This is coming together. I think this is a really good idea. And the best part is I only have to do guest episodes because I'm not the star of the show. I mean, I think that's the best thing I, I for just everyone. Fly in and, yeah. <laughs> do all my stuff down Skype. Abel, what are you doing? Come back to Sydney. And like your, your sons know, Moving on. Your sons know you're haunted by something in your past. They think it's your time at Drover's Run, but it's actually that time uh, that a horse had sex with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the mid-season reveal. <laughs> That's why, yes, okay, perfect. So Jacob Koshak refuses to visit his son on Drover's right. Run, and you don't know why. But it's because of that horrible, horrible thing that happened to him that time they're trying to get that breeding program going. It's also the reason he won't let his sons on YouTube. <laughs> How do we sell this? I mean, look, I, I just assume we say it on the podcast and the producers and McLeod's daughters are listening because they've followed everything you do since uh, you did the show. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I still get mail occasionally, like uh, forwarded on to me from, I think it's big in Scandinavia. It tends to be g the Germanic uh, Germanic language a lot of the time. People write to me in um, wanting photos and stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it, I, I do remember the first time I went to the States in like 2007. I think it had just been bought by Hallmark or one of those kind of cable channels. And I was seeing billboards everywhere and stuff. So... I don't know. It does kind of have that classic Australian look to it. People like Australians on in rural settings. I, Do you remember there was a I period I can imagine where, it would have been more successful uh, would, overseas almost because of that. Like, because it is that sort of idea of 
like, oh yeah, this is what we imagine Australia to be. Like, have you ever thought of going to any of those mm. countries where it is big and just sucking it up a bit? Like, it'd be quite fun to walk down the street in Switzerland or whatever and have people like point at you and go, McLeod's daughters. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have very different ideas of fun, Will. I guess sure, what I'm really not? saying is uh, it'd be fun for me to be there with you and see that happen. It did, remember there's a period of time Maybe we're past it, but it felt like if you were going to create an Australian drama, it had to have a rural element. Like it was like a country mm. practice. It was Blue Heelers. It was McLeod's Daughters. When every now and then they would stray into setting something like urban, but the more often than not the safe bet was let's make it semi-rural. I reckon, I, there's, I know there's been some talk about uh, rebooting Blue Heelers as well. And I could say What? Yeah. Really? And I could say that. I could definitely. I'd be into I'd be into that. Yeah, I can definitely see that I'd definitely idea be that Blue Healers is that sort of show. That if they just made a new version of Blue Healers, I reckon that'd work really quite well on Australian television still. Yeah. I guess the problem is and was always the credibility issue with Blue Healers is how many crimes can happen in a small town. Well, that's why they've had some time off. Heaps. They can come back like there hasn't been a crime for seven years, Batman style. What about I mean, if you're gonna do do it realistically yep. Like a lot of rural communities have huge problems with ice. Right. So what about it's Blue Healers specifically, but it's Task Force Icebreaker. So it's literally like the Blue Healers team are reassembled or it's a brand new team of uh, Blue Healers to tackle the ice epidemic. Do you reckon you could get 22 episodes out of that one story? I mean, line? maybe you could do it like um, The Wire and it could be like a, re a kind of grittier <laughs> reboot of Blue Healers. Uh, well, they kind of did do that. When I joined Blue Healers, they actually had made that shift into something grittier. They decided that they wanted to kind of like stay um, as close as they could to what was happening with the trends in American procedurals. So back when Law and Order and NYPD Blue and stuff were going, that you know that handheld sort of um, cinema verite, darker storylines, moodier lighting and stuff. Blue Healers went from being bright, sunny, like a BBC heartbeat, one of those kind of shows, to then being NYPD Blue in the last two years. But Maybe they just need to push it further. Maybe it should be like fucking Narcos. Right. Undercover cops in country Australia trying to break the hold of bikey gangs and, you know, uh, and, 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 and I like ice dealers. I reckon, I reckon that's actually pretty good. Yeah, I, gotta be, like, I like that as well. And, you know, like there's something menacing about like the, you, there's been great success in Australia with obviously your underbelly series, but also like, you know, Animal Kingdom and movies like that where – it's about the ordinariness, the ordinariness, is that a word? But of the people who commit the crimes, the kind of mundanity of yes. like day-to-day -day crime. And in the country, the sort of people who are involved in those things aren't lovable criminals. They're fucking hard weirdos that like, you know, went to the country. Mm. Like, I mean, imagine being the fucking ice lord in fucking Gippsland. Like, I mean, no yeah. offense to the ice lord of Gippsland if they do listen to the podcast, but... It just if you're going to be in like an ice lord, surely you're going to do it in the cities. It feels like you've settled a little, you know what I mean? Like, so you've got to be an interesting cat, and they're weird and interesting people. I think there'd be a lot of appeal to that. Me and Jem shot a, a music video a few years ago out in country New South Wales, and um, we're working with this stunt team doing this a uh, lot of like car crashes and stuff. So they had this training facility out in the country where we could like flip cars and smash them and stuff. It was really cool, um, but. A short distance away from from their property was a compound of like a major New South Wales bikey gang. Because you drove past it and you would see literally like the barbed wire, big gate, security cameras, the logo of the gang painted on the gate. And so we got all curious and jumped on Google Earth. And when you looked in, this place was like a it was like a complex. Like it was huge. It had like guest houses, swimming pool, looked like a putting green, tennis courts. Like it was a massive facility. And you got the sense driving around this small town that those guys kind of were the law and right. order. Like it was like the wild, wild west. Like that they, because there weren't a lot of businesses and stuff, but they sort of set the tone. Like there's just a few things that sort of didn't gel. Like a lot of kind of, we drove past a car that was just abandoned on the side of the road uh, on the way to set one day. And then two hours later I went past and that car had been stripped. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that doesn't sort of happen. Well, you know what I mean? That doesn't just happen every day in the city. And then um, at one stage, we needed to shoot this exterior of a house. And so I walked up to the street and I could see this, you know, cute little weatherboard house, you know, a few doors down across the road. So 
I walked up and knocked on the door and this woman answered and she was pretty uh, lit up. And I was like, hey, uh, I said, look, I'm producing this music video. We're just shooting across the road. We just need to get an exterior of the house. Would you mind if in about an hour um, a small camera crew comes back? We'll just set up just in the front yard. We just want to shoot your house. And she was like, okay, uh, what are you? Who are you? And I'm like, uh, my name is Charlie. I'm a producer and blah, blah, blah. I said, here's my number. If anything changes, just give me yeah. a call. He's like, okay, that's fine. Just, just, yeah, you'll be back in an hour. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So an hour passes by. We go back and uh, I knock on the door. And with my camera crew and i'm like hey uh is it still cool for shoots and she's like who are you <laughs> i said uh i'm charlie we, we spoke like an hour ago and she's like what do you want to do i said i just want to just want to shoot the house is that okay and she's like yeah okay you're gonna shoot the house but don't go into the shed out back don't go there because uh uh my parents my parents are are, are in there and i'm like okay now that's fine we we, we don't want to shoot the back we just want to get the, the exterior of the house so we set up and as we're shooting like everyone's like this feels a bit weird we can hear her like clanking about inside the house you hear this and this like f8 holdens flies on the corner this dude with a rat's tail gets out and he's like what are you doing and i'm like uh we just i just uh, spoke to your girlfriend your wife and she said it's cool to, to shoot the house he's like right you didn't go to the shed did you I'm like no 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 we just we, we just want to we just want to shoot the house and he's like yeah because because i got all my tools in the shed and you know, it's dangerous. Oh, really? <laughs> and I'm like... She shouldn't have put her parents yeah. in there if it's so dangerous, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay. I look at Jeremy and Jeremy's like, maybe we should just... And I'm like, yeah, let's get out of here as quick as we can. But you could do... If you did Blue Healers in a place like that, where like a bikey gang run the town, yeah. Sons of Anarchy style, they've got a compound, every business you know, is paying them, you know, extortion money. Every second house is a front for a meth lab or whatever. I reckon that could be quite cool. That's the way you reboot it. Yeah, I reckon that's a really good idea. It's Sons of Anarchy meets sort of, so you can even sort of tell both sort of sides of the story, couldn't you? You could do that sort of thing of going, have the cop side, yeah. but also have the sort of, you know, the idea of the, maybe this town actually quite likes the way it's being run and mostly people are safe here now and, you know, all those sort of things. You know, the bikies are big contributors to the local sporting club and community and stuff like that. And you could really kind of tackle some of the, the moral issues about the fact that country people feel like abandoned by the cities and maybe, you know, they need something else to replace that. Actually, that's a, I reckon that's a really, really good idea. I wonder how we sell that. Well, we've got to write it first. Also, Can we don't do really that? need to call it Blue Healers. <laughs> no. No, in fact, I think that might just confuse people. I feel, I feel like that so, would really confuse some people who, who tuned in for a charming John Wood-style murder mystery and just found this show about, oh, you're a fucking cunt, mate. Where's me fucking ice? Don't fucking, <laughs> mate, don't look in the shed. Me parents are in there with dangerous weapons. Oh, man. You didn't have any bikers out in Hayfield, did you? Were there any? Did you have any criminals? I mean, I yeah. I mean, there was criminals. There was crime. There was local families that were sort of renowned. Oh, really? Yeah. So there was one family that I won't name, but um, they had like seven or eight kids because they'll because they'll because they'll kill you. I mean, it's one of those things where I could probably say it because you know there was enough sort of criminal convictions and blah 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 around it that you know, but. The interesting thing was when you grow up in a community, even though one family's notorious for, you know, being maybe on the, you know, the opposite side of the fence or the opposite side of the law or whatever, like you end up, you know, becoming friendly or playing junior footy or cricket or going to school with, you know, various levels of the kids. Cause they had like, you know, seven or eight kids. So, you know, my brother was the same age. Buying, as buying, sorry, play, playing footy, going to school, playing footy, play, going to school, buying your drugs off uh, those kids. <laughs> you don't want to piss them well, off. Well, the funny thing was that they were really nice kids. You know, like, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, great, you know, friendly family, but you could tell that like in a situation when shit suddenly turned, they were the ones that stepped forward and not back. You know, like if you're ever in a situation right. where kids from another school or some sort of situation was about to go down, you know how most kids are like, oh, shit, hang on, what just went on here? And kind of go, uh, we should get out of here. They were the ones who were just like, oh, at last, shit's about to get real. You know, start cracking their fingers <laughs> and be ready to go. I guess it's funny. Like there would have been definitely, I, went, I had the opposite, uh, you know, growing up in the city, going to a private school. But there definitely would have been fathers, I'm sure, uh, or families at the schools I went to who were involved in criminal activity just probably would have been like, 
not as obvious. Probably more white criminal, white collar criminal activity. There was dudes who were associates of John Elliott, for instance, uh, that I went to school with. A bunch of them went to prison. I remember. Oh, well, my, not the same know, kind of I've thing. I've spoken before about this, but like one of my neighbours was Australia's greatest ever con man. He stole three hundred million dollars from the National Safety Council. So. You know, that's a white, it can, they consider that kind of a white collar crime or whatever. But I mean, he stole $300 million. So it's probably how, it's how? probably a lot more impressive than like, you know, a family that would nick a couple of toasters from the footy sheds or something. <laughs> <laughs> what that, that's where, so he, obviously he was caught. Uh, what was the scam? So he, basically, so there was this place called the National Safety Council, which was, um, basically mm. became uh, for a time a world leading, you know, sort of training base for, you know, people who were going to rescue people on helicopters and stuff like that. They had a giant ha submergible helicopter that would like, you know, they could dunk in a sort of pool so they could, you know, you know recreate, you know, what it's like yeah. to escape out of a helicopter crashing in the ocean. And they were like training dogs to parachute and skydive and stuff and doing all this like... <laughs> Yeah, train, training like seagulls to detect submarines and like all this crazy stuff. But it was basically the reason they were able, this tiny little place out in the middle of nowhere was able to become a world leading standard in this thing was it was essentially a giant sort of Ponzi scheme. Like he was telling them he was buying all this equipment and he was buying some, he was buying some really good stuff. But to justify the fact that they could run it all, he had to then just pretend he was buying all this other stuff. So he would take people out. They'd have all these big, like, crates, these giant sort of, you know, those metallic storage sort of rooms. And he'd, like, people, the investors would come out and, like, he'd open one up and it'd be full of all this cool shit and he'd take them all for a helicopter ride and he'd take them to lunch and everyone would have uniforms and they'd be like, oh, here's a check. And then all the other boxes were just empty. Like, so he just had one that was a showroom wow. and the rest were like empty shells. And what he would do, this was one of my favorites, was often he'd take them to lunch or whatever and then they'd take all the stuff out of the one they'd showed them and put all that stuff in one of the boxes way over the other side. And so he'd walk them over the other side and show them that box, you know, to kind of imply to everybody that all the boxes had stuff in them. So, I mean, it was a pretty fun way to do it. It turns out he like... So that's it. Go on. That's equivalent of like having a briefcase filled with notes, but it's actually just all plain paper and you've just put like a $50 note on the top of each stack of paper. Yeah, that's exactly what it was like. He basically did the old, it's real money on the top and then the rest is just paper notes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So how did he get busted? What happened? Uh, well, it eventually Someone finally all fell decided apart they because to... the accounts didn't add up. So eventually when, like, I mean, it was during the hubris time of banks just wanting to give people money and it was a very exciting idea and it was being used uh by a lot of you know huge you know the army the navy all these sort of things were using technology and people and experience that was coming out of this organization so it, for a while it was too big to fail but then it's, finally they did the accounts and went oh hang on there's 300 million dollars here that isn't accounted for and uh only one guy knows all about it this um Studio we're shooting at at the moment in Adelaide is uh, it's 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 a it's historical significance. A lot of Australian classic films and television shows have been filmed there. And uh, back in uh, the 80s, Australia had a, a film investment scheme called the 10BA clause, which basically meant that you could get a hundred percent tax write-off for investing in Australian film, which is great because uh, it meant there was more production happening. But what it also meant is there was more dudes on the Gold Coast <laughs> trying to move hundreds of thousands of dollars and investing in any old kind of shit. So this studio is filled with some of the greatest movie posters. I'll take some snaps and see if I can post them to the Facebook page because some of these films are just like amazing looking. Like I just need to know like at what point did someone go, look, fuck. We don't have a script, but this dude is giving us like $2 million from his uh, property company up in the Gold Coast. So let's make this Mad Max knockoff. It's fantastic. Like a lot of genre films. It felt like back in the day, that's when Australia was like making more genre films. Uh, does it feel like you're in like some movie or TV show where they couldn't get the rights to real posters? So they've had to create a whole bunch of imaginary movies for the world? Yes. Yeah, it feels 100% like that. There's one in particular, which is just, uh, I can't remember the name of the film, but the tagline is, move over, Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a shot of a guy. 
It's the it's the most poxy low res photo of a dude in a leather jacket and a beanie holding a gun. Like the only thing the from that poster, the only similarity I can tell between this guy and Mad Max. There's no dystopian futurescape. There's no big cars. There's no leather suit. It's just he's holding a gun, <laughs> and he looks slightly annoyed. Also, if you know anything about Mad Max, the one thing that he's not famous for is moving over. So, <laughs> oh, it's great. There's another one called Spank, which is um, just a topless girl uh, with boxing gloves covering her boobs, and it's like Adelaide. Are you ready to get spanked? <laughs> see, I mean, like. People complain that not enough Australians go to see Australian films. I reckon we bring that back. That film... I mean, if we've got negative gearing, why can't we have a 100% tax write-off for investment in Australian film? That's the best way to get our stupid ideas up. Imagine, Will, like if there was a 10BA clause, every time you and I came up with some fucking stupid film idea or a reboot of McLeod's Daughter set in space, we could just fucking go to some dude on the Gold Coast and get it made. Yeah, why can't they bring that up? Let's bring that back. Let's start. Let's start making that the biggest issue facing the Australian population. <laughs> I actually would like to know why why they what why they got rid of it. I mean, because it was probably they, they, it was they must have them heaps of money. But they're not. Oh, because the government would match the investment, I imagine, or something like well, that. Well, no, they're not paying tax because that the, they're not. But like, there's a, like if you yeah, if you got I if you got two hundred million dollars you're putting into a film, that's two yeah you know, or whatever two two million dollars into a film, that's two million dollars that you you're not getting you're not paying tax on. So that's normally revenue they yeah. would get. So the government is standing between us and Spank Two. <laughs> yeah, just because they want money for roads and hospitals. <laughs> I mean. There would have been so many mysteries to me for that poster for Spank, though, because, like, firstly, she's topless, which is not synonymous with spanking. Yep. Like, bottomless is your spanking area. And she's wearing boxing gloves, which are also no good for spanking. The, the messages are very mixed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's confusing. In fact, hang on, let's look it up. Why don't we finish off on a bit of fucking Spank trivia? Right. What do you think? Oh, great. Yeah, just Google Spank Sp- and see what comes up. I bet it's this movie Sp- first. <laughs> spank IMDb. No. Wow, there's a lot of Spanks. <laughs> it's definitely not, definitely not the first entry. IMDb. All right, here we go. Oh, okay. This was actually made in 1999. Oh. Here we go. Directed by Ernie Clark, written by David Farrell and David Lightfoot, starring Vince Paletto, Victoria Dixon Whittle, and, Lu- and Lucia Mastrantoni. I think. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Paulie, an Italian man, returns to his hometown of Adelaide after spending three years in a monastery. Upon returning home, he finds his buddies have not grown beyond where he left them. Together, they decide to open a cafe. Enter a rich young man who's obsessed with Sylvester Stallone movies. That's his nickname of Rocky. Huh. Well, that fits in with Tovop. He acts like a gangster with thugs in tow and constantly belittles his girlfriend. <laughs> obviously, the girl and Paulie hit... Hang on, obviously? Obviously, the girl and Paulie hit it off and they must have find a way out of Rocky's clutches. The film's title comes from the name of the cafe the trio decide on. Do you reckon that... Uh, well, that's disappointing. Do you reckon that character was based on the person who was financing the movie? I think so. And also... Why is the topless girl on the poster in the boxing gloves? It doesn't really... Rocky, I guess. Boxing gloves. I guess there's some... There's a tenuous link, (laughs) right? I mean, it doesn't seem like much of a link. There's a second bit of trivia here on IMDb. It says that uh, Spank largely revolves around the cafe culture, which dominates much of Adelaide's social scene, particularly Rundle Street. Did you know that? Well, I mean... Would you think of Adelaide as having a cafe culture? Yeah, but but only really recently. So this film was way before its time, because quite recently they've turned into a great cafe culture down there. They've got a lot of cool little bars and got a lot of cool little cafes and stuff now. But I didn't think so back then. No, Paulie is an ex priest who has recently left his order and seeks and direction his life. To his horror, many of his childhood friends still remain exceedingly delinquent. Specifically, Rocky, a boxing obsessed thirty something living off his father's success. That would explain the poster. Joe is Rocky's beautiful girlfriend. I'm assuming Joe's uh-huh. in the poster. Who is infatuated by the ex-priest Paulie. And the feeling is, of course, mutual. The rest of the film centers on Paulie's friends, Tina and Nick's trials to make 
their mark in the competitive Rundle Street cafe scene with their own effort. The film balances comedy, specifically multicultural stereotypes, and traditional romance side plots. So everyone go check out Spank this weekend, (laughs) if you can find it, on iTunes, I assume. All right, I should go. Uh, uh, Please um, uh, go to our Patreon page if you'd like to support the show. Uh, That's patreon.com forward slash tofop. There's lots of bonus content there um, uh, for people, uh, particularly uh, if you like the artwork of James Fosdyke. For a little as a dollar a month, uh, if you sign up to Patreon, you will be uh, uh, delivered a new James Fosdyke comic strip every two weeks based on the comedy stylings of this particular show. Uh, May... Uh, be tax deductible in some countries. Who knows? <laughs> we don't think so. We also have a website where you can find this podcast and many other great audio entertainment uh, podcasts uh, like Willosophy, Will's version of this, but serious, where he chats to, chats to more interesting and intelligent people. Fofop, which is like this, but Will chats to more funny comedians. Or Two Guys, One Cup, which is like this, but just about football. <gasps> We've really... We've got to branch out a bit. What I, guess. I love the most we have is a formula, we started we this conversation by saying that we can't explain to people what this is, and now you're comparing other things to this, <laughs> which are all the same, all unexplainable. Um, you got shows to plug. You were going to Canada, yeah, Montreal, right? Canadian. just for last festival. It's very soon. In fact, six shows critically will. Um, it's going to be great. So if you've got friends in Montreal or if you're going to be in Montreal or if you want to travel and come and see the show, that'd be really great because I got heaps of tickets to sell, six shows. So, you know, that'd be great. Come and see it. Yes, please. Uh, okay, we're done. So I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson.